6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck continues his teaching on the book of Isaiah, chapters 60 through 62. Now what Jesus then does is he closes the book and gave it again to the minister and sat down and the eyes of all them that were in the synagogue were fastened on him and he began to say unto them, This day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears. That's a mouthful. He is claiming to be the fulfillment of that prophecy in Isaiah chapter 61. I'm always fascinated by these screwball groups that say, well, Christ never claimed to be God. They didn't read John 8, and they didn't read most of John. Jesus here is claiming to be the fulfillment of Isaiah 61. He said so, formally, in the synagogue. This day is the scripture fulfilled in your ears. Let's pause for a minute. I want to come back to this, so hold your place here. But let's turn to Isaiah chapter 61. And let's read the passage that Jesus was reading from, in effect. Now, make some allowances here for translations. It's almost, it's almost the same. There's a few subtle differences, nothing that material. Chapter 61, verse 1, The Spirit of the Lord, God, is upon me. Because the Lord hath anointed me to preach the good tidings to the meek. He hath sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Now, do you notice what's after the word Lord there? A comma. A comma. You might want to mark the comma. Now you say, well, wait a minute, Chuck. There was not punctuation in the Greek or the Hebrew. That's correct. But also, when you read passages like Paul, he doesn't say, I would not have you, ignorant brethren. <laughs> right? Or somebody else says, we are butt flesh. in deep trouble. Yeah, I think you may want to just scratch this tape, Doug. <laughs> the parsing of sentences is important, and it's inferred from the grammar. But the main point is, is that this implied comma, after the word Lord, Lord in verse 2, is where Jesus Christ stopped. He read this passage, but he stopped at a comma. Well, what was it that he didn't? One of the interesting things to do, I'm going to do this one of these days when I get some time. I want to write a book, you know, about the, the things that aren't there. There's all kinds of things in Scripture that are fascinating because of what's omitted. What Christ omitted was a phrase. And is that phrase important to you and I? Because what Jesus Christ did not read 
was the following words, and the day of vengeance of our God. Hey, friends, if he stood up in the synagogue in Nazareth and read this whole passage, and the day of vengeance of our God, and then said, hand the books in, by the way, this day <laughs> is that scripture fulfilled in your ears, that ushers in Joel 2, that ushers in the day of the Lord, I mean, it's over. You and I would not be in the family of God. Follow me? That's an important issue. That comma is a pause. It doesn't mean he's not going to do this. He is not doing it yet. He stopped at the comma, closed the book, and said, This day is that scripture fulfilled in your ears. What's implied by that? The day is coming when he's going to say, Hey, by the way, guys, <laughs> now the rest of it is. Among other things, it proves that Jesus was a dispensationalist, in a sense of speaking. In other words, there are periods of time in which God is doing certain things. Jesus Christ, in his ministry, was sent to accomplish and did accomplish a certain group of things. There are other things that he will accomplish on another occasion. We are fond of our concept of Christ as our kinsman redeemer. We talk a lot about that. There's a concept introduced in the Torah that undergirds many of the laws in Israel of the role and, and obligations and mission of what's called a goel, the kinsman redeemer. If you were in trouble financially and you in those cultures indentured yourself as a servant, sold yourself for five, six years or whatever, there were procedures by which your next of kin could redeem you. He was your kinsman redeemer. If you sold your land, now you couldn't actually give fee title to it because it was, it was given to your tribe. So that's why genealogy is so important. But what you could do is in effect sell it in the sense of selling the rights to it for a period of time. You and I would call that in today's vocabulary a lease. But if you sold your lease or your birthright or whatever, the procedures were invoked so that your kinsman redeemer could, under certain conditions, if he was able and if he chose to, he could redeem your land for you. This is all demonstrated dramatically, beautifully, colorfully in the romantic story of Ruth in the time of the judges. That story is beautiful for many reasons, but it's extremely provocative to us as students of prophecy because it models the operation of all these laws, the Leverite marriage, where if there was no uh, descendants from a deceased husband, that there was the obligation, or the, it, could be, it could be set up, so the obligation of the next of kin was to raise children also to the wife, to the heir, and so forth. So the Leverite marriage is there, the redemption of the land, and the, so forth. And of course, Boaz in that story is cast in the role of the Goel, the kinsman redeemer. Naomi, of course, is cast in the role of Israel because by the act of redemption of Boaz, Naomi is returned to her lands. But also by that same act of redemption, Ruth, a Gentile bride of Boaz, is a type of the church. And it's a very fascinating study. And the more you study the subtle details of that, the more you'll be discover that it's deliberate. The Holy Spirit designed the story. Not that it didn't actually happen. Don't misunderstand me. It did actually happen. But it's specifically crafted as presented to us to fulfill all kinds of insights. You will not understand Revelation 4 and 5 unless you really understand the book of Ruth. But the point is, you and I have all been taught a lot I hope, <laughs> about the role of the Goel, the kinsman redeemer. There's another thing uh, 
that I might mention, and I may have mentioned this before, bear with me. Every time you find one of these rules or ordinances or issues in the Bible, I want you to remember that nothing is there because of quaint traditions or what have you. They're all there by supernatural engineering. We have 66 books written by 40 authors that are an integrated message system. Nothing trivial. Every number, every place name, every detail there by design. When you encounter some weird procedure or some strange ordinance in Leviticus or wherever, recognize that somehow that thing, whatever it is that's troubling you, points to Jesus Christ. You say, well, gee, that's, then try and try it on. Let me give you one of my favorite examples is the concept of the city of refuge. Moses is told by the Lord, when you get in the, when you finally get into the land, I want you to pick out six cities, three east of the Jordan, three west of the Jordan. Six cities of refuge. And the laws were set up so that if you were guilty of the inadvertent death of somebody, somebody that you were responsible to negligence or what have you of having been killed, a condition that you and I would use the term manslaughter, you knew that the guy's next of kin would be coming after you. His event, he would be the avenger of blood, and he would, under the traditions of that time, be entitled to slay you for having slayed his kin. Because in anticipation of that, what you did was to flee to a city of refuge. When you got there, you convinced the city fathers that you were, in fact, guilty at worst of manslaughter, not premeditated murder, and you were given sanctuary. The law said that the avenger of blood could not touch you while you were in the city of refuge. If you left, you were fair game. But if you were in that city, you were protected by the procedures at that time. Now this all continued until another event occurred. This continued until the high priest died. That's over and that's in the city of refuge, that's in Jerusalem. But when the high priest died, that triggered a number of things, not the least of which was those that were in asylum and the city, you know, had sanctuary in the city of refuge were free to go and the avenger of blood could not touch them. You say, well, that's kind of quaint, kind of bizarre procedure. Why are we doing that? Well, let's, let's try it on for size. Who's responsible for the crucifixion of Jesus Christ? The church has merrily for 19 centuries blamed it on the Jews. They are the Christ killers. That's heresy. That's nonsense. I love the way Chuck Smith put it at the International Peace Congress. If you want to blame somebody for the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, blame me. It was my fault. It was my sins that put him on the tree. Not the Jews alone. All of us. My sins, your sins. We put him on the tree. The question I put before you, was that premeditated murder or manslaughter? Well, from God's point of view, it's premeditated because God, it was done according to the preordinate, you know, the predetermined counsels of God, according to that book of Acts, right? But from your point of view and mine, we're entitled to claim it for the purposes I'm going to talk about as manslaughter. Why? Because Jesus said, Father, forgive them for they what? No, not what they do. So are we guilty? Yes. But is it premeditated in the sense I'm going to use it? No. So I'm going to suggest to you that we're entitled to flee to a city of refuge. Who's our city of refuge? Jesus Christ, you betcha. For how long? Till the death of the high priest. Who's our high priest? Interesting, isn't it? It's fascinating how every little thing in the Torah models some aspect, some aspect 
of the completed work of Yeshua HaMashiach, every place we look. Now, as we talk about the kinsman redeemer, the Goel, we're glib to talk about his redemptive act. He redeems the land to Israel. He redeems us to the Father. Oh, great, that's all great. There's another role that Jesus Christ has. He's the kinsman redeemer. Do you know what else the kinsman redeemer was also called? The avenger of blood. The avenger of blood. And that's what Isaiah chapter 61 verse 2 says. And the day of what? Vengeance of our God. There is a score to settle of thousands of years of the abuse of the Creator, of God the Father, of, of, of His holy name. That's going to all get settled. That's all going to be put right. It's God's mercy that has forestalled His wrath, but not forever. And the day will come that the mission that is still in front of Yeshua HaMashiach is a wild set of commitments. They are detailed for us in a period of time called the Day of the Lord in Joel and Jeremiah and all the way through the Old Testament, but especially in the book of Revelation, chapter 6 through 19. And that's what the book of Isaiah is starting to move into. But before we leave Luke 4, since we started with this, I'd like to just dig into it a little bit further. We're down to verse 21. He said, He began to say to them, This day is the scripture fulfilled in your ears. And all bore him witness and wondered at the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth. And they said, Is not this Joseph's son? He said to them, Ye will surely say unto me this proverb, Physician, heal thyself. Whatever we have heard done in Capernaum, do also here in thy country. He said, Verily I say unto you, No prophet is accepted in his own country. But I tell you the truth, Many widows were in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heaven was shut up three years and six months, when great famine was throughout all the land. But unto none of them was Elijah sent, but only unto Zarephath, the city of Sidon, unto a woman that was a widow. And many lepers were in Israel in the time of Elisha, the prophet, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman, the Syrian. Now, <laughs> Jesus, in this little... Sermonette mentioned, takes two examples out of the Old Testament. And there, there are some aspects to them that are quite interesting. But the point is, we read that and say, okay, fine, what's that got to do with anything? You know, okay, so there's, there's, there, there are many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, but only one was healed by Elijah, taken care of, right? There are many lepers in Israel during Elisha, Elijah's successor, right? To only one healed was Naaman. Now, you and I read that and sort of shrug. We're Gentiles. We're not following the message. But you know what's neat? The Holy Spirit makes sure that we get... He, he has a form of exclamation point when we miss it because of our lack of Jewish background. He highlights something. He says, verse 28 says, And all they that in the synagogue, when they heard these things, were filled with wrath and rose up and thrust him out of the city and led him unto the brow of the hill on which their city was built that they might cast him down headlong. But he, passing through the midst of them, went his way. In other words, this little couple of examples got them so angry that they tried to throw him off a cliff. Now, if you've been to Nazareth, you know it's on a hillside. It's very steep, and, and you can easily visualize any of several places where this might have taken place where, because it is, you know, it's a hillside-type situation. But they rose up and thrust him out of the city and led him to the brow of a hill on which their city was built that they might cast him down headlong. They're going to throw him off a cliff. 
What for? What got them so upset? Which causes us to go back and say, let's examine more carefully, especially from a Jewish perspective, what had he said here? I tell you the truth, many widows were in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heaven was shut up three years and six months, and when great famine was throughout all the land. One small point, I'm very fascinated. We all know from reading uh, the book of Kings that Elijah ceased the drought. What's not clear from the text, I don't believe, is that it was also he that closed it up in the first place. But what's interesting, you will not find the duration in the Old Testament, that it was three and a half years, but twice in the New, here by Jesus Christ and later by James, they both mentioned that the heavens were shut up by Elijah for how long? Three and a half years. And I personally believe that that's there to highlight Revelation 11. I believe that that demonstrates that that's one of the two witnesses, because that's one of the unique powers of the two witnesses. And for how long does the two witnesses have that power? For three and a half years. So Jesus highlights, the Holy Spirit's tucked this in here, incidental to the passage, to help us when we get to Revelation 11. But the main point is, it says, Many widows were in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heaven was shut up with, the, uh, with three years and six months, when the great famine was throughout the land. But unto none of them was Elijah sent, but only to Zarephath, the city of Sidon, unto a woman that was a widow. If you're Jewish, the thing that catches your attention, that's a Gentile widow. She's in Sidon, not in Israel. She's a Gentile. Wait a minute. There are many widows in Israel, but the only one that's healed is a Gentile by Elijah? That doesn't sit very well. See, Israel was called to be a light unto the world. Instead, they got to a mentality, they disdained Gentiles, and even many of them for a long time held the view that a Gentile couldn't even be saved. That was not God's intention. Verse 27, many lepers were in Israel in the time of Elisha, Elisha being the successor to Elijah. Many lepers were in Israel at the time of Elijah, the prophet. None of them was cleansed, but only Naaman, the what? The Syrian. What Jesus is in effect preaching here is the doctrine of sovereign election. God says, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. And the point Jesus is making, that even in the Old Testament... God can choose whom he will, and he picked two examples where the only one, not only was a Gentile saved, it was the only one saved. You follow me? That's why they got upset, because this violated their whole concept that we're God's chosen people and we're privileged and the Gentiles are dogs, dirt, whatever. So it's an aside. So Luke is uh, giving us a lot of interesting insights, but I guess we should pop back to Isaiah 61. Yeah, we are. In case you hadn't noticed, we are studying Isaiah Chapter 61. Day of vengeance of our God. That comma in verse 2 of 61 separates the first and second comings of Jesus Christ. To comfort all those that mourn, to appoint those to those uh, who mourn, to Zion, in Zion, to give unto them beauty for ashes, oil for uh, of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness, that they might be called... Trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he might be glorified. So now we're going to shift. Isaiah is going to springboard from this to just highlight the kingdom blessings. They shall build the old uh, wastes, and they shall raise up the former desolations, and they shall repair the waste cities, the desolations of many generations. Now you can argue that some of that's happening now, but not really. The scope of this passage is far greater than that. I believe it's really referring to the kingdom period. And foreigners shall stand and feed your flocks, and the sons of the aliens shall be your plowmen and your vine dressers. 
But ye shall be named the priests of the Lord. Men shall call you the ministers of our God. Ye shall eat the riches of the nations, and in their glory shall ye boast yourselves. For your shame ye shall have double. And for confusion they shall rejoice in their portion. Therefore in their land they shall possess a double portion. Everlasting joy shall be unto them. In other words, they're going to get compensation for some of the problems they've got. For I, the Lord, love justice and hate robbery for burnt offering. And I will direct their work in truth, and I will make an everlasting covenant with them. Which I assume is an echo of Jeremiah 31 and, and the, the everlasting covenant. Their seed shall be known among the nations, and their offspring among the peoples. All who see them shall acknowledge them, that they are the blessed seed whom the Lord hath blessed. I will rejoice greatly in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God, for he hath clothed me with the garments of salvation. He hath covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decketh himself with ornaments, and as a bride adorneth herself with her jewels. Interesting idioms. The bridegroom and the bride. That sound like Revelation? Sure. But where's it drawn from? All through the Scripture, but certainly from here. And again, we've got this idea of being clothed with the garments of salvation. Where Isaiah, in the next chapter, a few chapters, is going to indulge in more idioms having to do with being clothed with righteousness. What's our righteousness versus his righteousness? Again, it's always the idiom's always garments, and we'll, we'll deal with that when we get there. He has covered me with a robe of righteousness. Whose righteousness? His, not mine. Praise God. I don't want justice. I want his mercy. I don't want my righteousness. I want his. As a bridegroom decketh herself with her ornaments, as a bride adorneth herself with jewels. For as the earth bringeth forth her bud, and as the garden causeth the things that are sown in it to spring forth, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to spring forth before all the nations. That's the end of chapter 61. Now, chapter 62 picks up the uh, last... Um, half a dozen verses of chapter 61 which deals with Israel's kingdom age but chapter 62 points out that there's going to be unrest divine unrest until the time comes for the kingdom to be established uh, chapter 62 for Zion's sake will I not hold my peace and for Jerusalem's sake I will not rest until her righteousness go forth as brightness and her salvation as a lamp that burneth and the nations shall see thy righteousness, and all kings thy glory. And thou shalt be called by a new name, which the mouth of the Lord shall name. Now one of the things that I'll leave it to you to sort of play with if you're inclined to this kind of weird stuff is to take these last chapters of Isaiah, we're getting near the end here, and notice how often and how many ways we find the word name emphasized. God talks about his name. And you know, you and I take uh, names sort of for granted. They're labels. They're labels of convenience. You and I generally don't attribute a lot of profound insight to a name. A name's a handle. It's a way of connecting, you know. God is not like that. It's interesting that in the Bible, names are very important. In Exodus uh, 3 and in Psalm 25, Matthew 23, John 17, again and again we find God takes his name very seriously. He embodies it in the Ten Commandments, right? He takes his name very seriously. 
His name is an object of praise in Hebrews 13, 15, Revelation 15, several places. It's interesting, too, that God takes the trouble to assign names, whether it's Isaac or whether it's Jesus or whether, you know, whatever, or John the Baptist. He assigned those names. It's interesting that God chooses on several occasions to change the names from Abraham to Abraham and Sarai to Sarah, from Simon to Peter, from Saul of Tarsus to Paul. So from this, we can begin to understand that God doesn't take these things casually. In fact, I'm going to suggest to you that there's nothing trivial in the Scripture, but among the things that are on the highest ground in God's agenda are names. Now, by the way, God is pretty skilled at naming things. The Scripture tells us that He has named all the stars. Now, if you have done any background in astronomy, that's a mind-blower. Let's take just one galaxy, ours. We call it the part that we can see in a peculiar way. We call it the Milky Way, but that's just the stars that are in our galaxy, huh? There's about 100,000 million stars. You say, what's that guy? That's a big number. Yes, it is a big number, because if you named them one per second, it would take you 2,500 years to name them all. <laughs> I wouldn't bother starting. God's already done it for you, you know. And that's just one galaxy. There are, apparently, billions of galaxies. God, the Bible says He names all the stars. One of the things we probably have the toughest time with is to understand what, what an engineer would call the bandwidth of God. But we need to understand that that God can, can spend what would seem to us like full time with each of us. He's interested in everything you do. He loves you so much that he can't take his eyes off you. Now, some of you, that makes it a little uncomfortable, ain't it? You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of Isaiah. Download the new K-House TV app to access an ever-growing collection of free resources. Visit the Apple or Android app store or search K-House TV on your Roku or Fire TV streaming device. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.